Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Looking at a picture of this man, nothing would seem amiss at first. A cardiologist dressed in a charcoal-colored suit, bald with a slightly gray beard and the hint of a smile. But... Behind those glassy eyes lies an evil far greater than any onlooker could have ever imagined. It was this man's role to produce chemical and biological weapons for a state-sponsored genocide. Nicknamed the South African Joseph Mengele, as well as Dr. Death, today we're looking at a piece of history that should not be forgotten, no matter how much some may protest. I actually stumbled upon this case by chance after googling for more information about a series I was watching that was inspired by real-life happenings. This series in particular is called Dr. Death, which I highly recommend you give a watch, especially if you're a fan of series that are based off of true life crimes. So I was typing Dr. Death into Google, and you know how Google search does that predictive text thing? Well, it auto-filled South Africa. I was of course curious, so I just hit enter. And the results? Seriously something straight out of a science fiction or horror movie. I mean, I myself was not even aware that any of this had happened. Honestly, at points in this episode, I'm pretty sure you won't believe your own ears, but this is all real life. So without further ado, let's get into it. So today we're taking it back to apartheid era in South Africa. 1950 to be precise. On the 6th of July, Vota Basson was born. He was the eldest child in his family and he was the son of a policeman and an aspiring opera singer. He grew up in Cape Town and he matriculated from Milnerton High School in 1967. He had planned to study further at the University of Cape Town, but the following year his father had transferred to Pretoria and so he had enrolled at the University of Pretoria. It was there that he had completed his degree and he went on to qualify as a medical doctor. In 1974, he served his one-year internship at H.F. Furvot. His goal was to specialize in gynecology, but as was required of all white men in South Africa at the time, he had to complete compulsory military service. And so, in January of 1975, he joined the South African Defense Force, the SADF. Whilst there, he ended up specialising in internal medicine, which basically involves dealing with the prevention, diagnosis and treatment of internal diseases. By 1980, he was a qualified physician with a master's degree in physiology as well as physiological chemistry, and he was also a lieutenant colonel. It was at this point that he had decided that he was going to stay in the SADF, as according to him, Medicine is my profession. War is my hobby. And that is where it all began. For the next 12 years, Basson was allowed to do as he pleased, 
move where he wanted, and act on whichever whim he desired. He was given governmental funding and he was told that he could do whatever he pleased, even if that involved lying, bribery, or theft. So you may be asking, but why did this seemingly ordinary doctor have all of this access? Well, it might just be because he had become the head of a chemical and biological warfare project. This program was named Project Coast. And every aspect of this project was on a need-to-know basis. And thus, Basson's word was the only proof available. Project Coast was divided into a biological and chemical section. One of the chemical laboratories were called Delta G Scientific. So basically, this chemical and biological warfare project targeted the black South African population. And contrary to popular belief, was no secret. Their official mission was twofold. Firstly, to develop crowd control agents for domestic use within South Africa. And secondly, to develop weapons to counter the threat posed by the Cuban forces in Angola. During apartheid, unrest was becoming common as non-white South Africans were beginning to stand up and fight back against colonial rule. The uprising in June 1976 in Soweto, where 23 people were killed and more than 4,000 were injured, young schoolchildren included, marked a pivotal moment in history, signaling to the apartheid government at that time that things were about to get out of control. This is where the initial idea was pushed forward to develop non-lethal weapons that would be used to control the black protesters as well as black freedom fighters and activists. Comparisons were however later drawn between this project and the disturbing human experiments conducted by Dr. Joseph Mengele in Nazi Germany. The true nature of this program however would remain hidden for almost two decades. During this time, all documents related to Project Coast were shredded and destroyed every two years. And back in this time, digital data saving was not really a big thing. Although South Africa was not permitted, and as per the treaties they had signed, to use chemical and biological warfare in an international context, there was no expressed prohibition against domestic use. And so, a loophole was discovered. It was formally claimed that the Project Coast program came about as a way to protect South African troops against the use of chemical weapons, such as poisoned food, clothing and cigarettes that were being used by the Cuban forces in Angola. Basson, at just 30 years old, was honoured to be able to serve his country in this way, but soon realised that he would need to obtain information on chemical and biological warfare. He was to learn and develop the acquired knowledge, but it was essential that there were no links pointing back to the SADF from this program. The SADF policy, however, did state that the use of chemical agents within South Africa was envisioned. On a quest to gain the knowledge that he needed, Basson then visited Texas and Taiwan to check out their chemical warfare facilities and programs. He later corresponded with a German scientist 
who, amongst others, later supplied him with equipment and more. Project Coast would later go on to supply substances such as thallium, rat poison, anthrax and cholera to agents of the CCB and South African security police. But that's not all they did. The majority of the research dictated to scientists like Don Gosson, who worked under Besson, was to develop agents that could poison human beings and go undetected post-mortem. There were over 600 organisms developed by the project, however only 20 to 30 of them were suitable or could be considered biological weapons. Working in the various laboratories such as Rodeplatt involved working with toxic substances and developing liquid and powder forms that could be used in weapons, ammunition and everyday items, like cigarettes, drinks or even chocolate. These substances included the likes of anthrax, botulinum toxin, potassium cyanide, salmonella, cantharidin, and black mamba venom, to name a few. To give you an idea of the lethal nature of the substances being produced, botulinum toxin, for example, can prove lethal in just fractions of a microgram. Three to five grams of the purified substance was produced, according to a scientist in later testimony. Doesn't sound like that much, right? Well, five grams is enough to kill one million people. There were also experiments with the organism that causes cholera, as well as with various herbicides and pesticides that could have toxic potential. In the beginning, they tested on mice, hamsters, dogs, and several different types of primates. The Rodeplot laboratories then began work on engineering a botulinum toxin that would be undetectable. Although it could never be definitively proven, I mean, if it is undetectable, it's undetectable, it is highly likely that these toxic substances were tested on soldiers and prisoners. There was evidence of at least 200 SWAPO, Southwest African People's Organization prisoners, who were poisoned during the border wars in Namibia. It is alleged that the victims were injected with incapacitating amounts of muscle relaxers before being dropped into the ocean. And additionally, some of the weapons developed were seriously insane, like I'm talking James Bond level of insane. There were poisonous rings as well as bicycle pumps and umbrellas with a syringe-like mechanism in the handle that could shoot out tiny poison-filled balls. Yeah, I kid you not. And when a victim was shot, for example in the leg, it would cause a kind of sensation as though they were being stung by a bee. And then they would die. The autopsy, if conducted, would not show the true cause of death, as polycarbonate, the main component within the poison, is not revealed in x-rays. Yeah. Right, so before you recover from that, get this. One of the targets that were discussed was Nelson Mandela, who was still in prison at this time. It was believed that if there was a way for him to get extremely sick, then his release would present less of a political problem. As testified to in court by those who worked under Busson, there were plans to administer thallium, a heavy metal, 
which in a specific quantity would result in symptoms very similar to meningitis or encephalitis. Vassan had also spoken to colleagues about having played a role in administering thallium to Steve Biko, an anti-apartheid activist who was later assassinated in 1977. Another member of the ANC, the African National Congress, Frank Chakane, recalls how his underwear was laced with poison, with him just barely escaping death. And from there, I couldn't walk there to really carry me into the car. We knew that there were laboratories in South Africa that were producing this stuff. There were three laboratories, and Basson was directly involved. They produced those chemicals. Many people died mysteriously, and nobody has talked about it. Nobody takes it seriously. But thanks God I'm alive, you know, to tell the story, because not, there's nobody I know of who survived it like I did. And the target list did not end there. It actually got worse, if you can even believe that. As crowd control was one of the main goals or priorities for Project Coast, large quantities of tear gas and other irritants were being produced for the purpose of being used in ammunition or grenades by police during protests. But this non-lethal method was insufficient for Basan. He wanted to try a different, far more sinister approach. Hassan and his team's dream project was referred to as the Black Bomb. Honestly, at this point, I wish I was making this stuff up. Their goal was to create a biological weapon that would selectively target black people. His hope for this rested on what is known as polymorphism, or the idea that there is a genetic variation present between black and white populations. His team worked hard to develop a sterilant which could be sprayed onto crowds, rendering them temporarily or permanently sterile. Yes, you heard me correctly. Another one of the ideas which, thank goodness, was never successfully produced, well, at least to the knowledge of the public, was to poison water supplies in black neighborhoods. What they did, however, manage to create were weaponized street drugs. In particular, cannabis, methaquilone, which is a sedative, and the most frequently worked with, MDMA, also known as ecstasy. The quantity produced by Delta G Scientific Laboratories was around 900 kgs, which cost the taxpayer 3 million rand to produce. The idea was to create poisonous drugs that could incapacitate or even kill the user. This was an imaginative out-of-the-box plan, hatched from the knowledge that these kinds of drugs were already on the streets and they were being frequently used by the black community. The motivation for this drug movement was never really established though. And so everything was going well and dandy for Basan, his team members, and the other apartheid ruling miscreants. That is until P.W. Borta was replaced. Borta was alleged to have known everything that was going on at that time. And it was very clear that he had chosen which side he was on judging by his support of Basson. 
F.W. de Klerk, however, would have a slightly different view. As he replaced P.W. Borta, de Klerk went on to unban political movements as well as to release ANC leaders from prison, Nelson Mandela being one of them. He then went on to meet with Bassan to discuss Project Coast. He only authorized the continued work on tear gas and other non-lethal agents, but he officially banned all research on lethal agents much to Bassan's dismay. Rudaplat Research Laboratories also still currently exists, however, now they are dedicated to plant research only. Under de Klerk, many investigations begun into the allegations of murders, drug smuggling, and of course, the abuse of a chemical and biological warfare program. Bassan officially retired from the armed forces on the 31st of March 1993 and the government ordered that all stocks of chemical and biological weapons owned by the SADF and police were to be destroyed. It is said that all of the toxic organisms produced by Project Coast were destroyed in incinerators once Project Coast was concluded. However, there isn't anyone who can actually verify or confirm this. Yeah, sounds kind of sus to me. So after Bassan's forced retirement, he created an import-export company, which was essentially just a front for his illicit drug trade, which was particularly focused on ecstasy. This was all later confirmed when a former employee, Grant Wenzel, who had also started working as a drug dealer for Bassan, was caught and spilled the beans to police about the entire syndicate. And by the end of 1996, there were three major investigations of which Bassan was at the centre. It was, however, agents from the Narcotics Bureau, however, who laid a trap with the help of Wenzel. And they ended up making an arrest in Magnolia Dell, a pretty park opposite Bassan's home. He had exchanged a black bag containing around 1,040 capsules of ecstasy for 60,000 rand cash. As policemen had emerged from the bushes, Bassan had fled terrified into shallow water. The face of bravery. And yeah, spoiler alert, he didn't get very far. He would later say that he only ran because he thought that agents from the Israeli secret service, Mossad, were coming to kill him. Yeah. Cool. And so he was finally in jail, but only on drug trafficking charges. But not for long. After his arrest, his residence was placed under observation. And this is how two steel troves of documents and a later third was discovered when two women had attempted to move the documents from his home to an associate's house. These documents were supposed to have been destroyed after they were transferred onto CD-ROMs to be kept only in the presidential safe. But as usual, Basson had his own plan. So after he was released on bail in October, he was arrested again. And the testimony given during the criminal trial, which started in October of 1999, from self-confessed military hitmen and others would send shockwaves through the country. The scientists of Project Coast were tracked down and interviewed, which proved to not be the easiest of tasks as although some of them were willing to speak and unburden themselves, 
Others would just not cooperate. Amongst them, Basson, of course. Dr. Vainan Swanepoel, the former managing director of the biological facility Wurdeplatt Research Laboratories, and Dr. Mayberg, the former managing director of the chemical facility Delta G Scientific. So basically, the three main cats. Some individuals only spoke up because they felt wronged and they felt like they had been cheated and did not benefit as they should have from the actions and activities that were under scrutiny. Yeah, I kid you not. Everything surrounding this investigation took time, and there were multiple threats and issues on many different levels, both locally and internationally. There were big fears that exposure of the documents found would jeopardize international relationships. However, the main concern was that South Africa had not honored its commitment to the Biological Conventions of 1972, which banned the production of biological weapons and agents for any non-peaceful means. The government did not want this program to be known to international stakeholders or even the mass public in general. However, the truth would soon come out, to an extent. Bassan appeared before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but he rejected with contempt its offers of amnesty, as he would admit no wrongdoing. Eventually, Bassan's trial began in 1999 in the Pretoria Criminal Court. It would go on to last three years and be the most expensive trial in South Africa up until that point. There were over 153 witnesses who testified, but only one witness who testified in Bassan's defense. Bassan. Appearing in court, he was smug, and he even winked at the cameras. He behaved horrendously, sexualizing the woman who was sitting behind him, and during a courtroom recess, he had also scribbled on the wall in a graffiti style by a coffee shop and signed off as Dr. Death. It was almost as if he was proud of the informal title that had been given to him. He also continuously downplayed everything, claiming that the documents that were found in those steel trunks did not belong to him and he reserved his right to not incriminate himself. But he would also go ahead in court to kind of admit his wrongdoing by saying that he was only following orders. So in case you were hoping for a happy ending to this sordid episode, you're not going to enjoy this. On the 11th of April 2002, Bassan was acquitted on all charges against him, including 67 counts of murder, embezzlement, conspiracy to murder, fraud and drug offences. Judge Willie Hartzenberg was accused of being grossly biased in his ruling, as it was quite apparent what his decision would be prior to the conclusion of the trial. But the state and some of the public were outraged at the court's decision. In 2005, the Constitutional Court confirmed that the prosecution in the case could reopen proceedings. But... That has never actually happened. And in 2013, after a seven-year investigation, the Health Professions Council of South Africa, the HPCSA, the organization by which all health officials must be registered, 
concluded that Basson should be removed from the role of registered practitioners since he was guilty of unethical and unprofessional conduct due to his involvement in Project Coast. And one would think that it ended there, right? Well, you would be wrong. So let's head to present day. Last year, in fact, where in 2021, Voter Basson was still a practicing cardiologist at the High End Medi Clinic in Durbanville, Cape Town. He strongly believes and holds steadfast to the notion that he is an extremely talented cardiologist that the country cannot afford to do without. I mean, no one is denying his skill set. MediClinic said that they could not stop Voter Basson from practicing as he is a registered doctor. Their official response to the matter. By law, doctors are independent practitioners and cannot be employed by MediClinic Southern Africa. We cannot prohibit HPCSA registered doctors, including Dr. Basson, from practicing unless they are prevented by law from doing so. Basson has yet to be held accountable for his part and his actions in the apartheid chemical and biological warfare program. He is still as arrogant as ever, showing zero remorse for his past actions as it's clear that he doesn't see the problem with them. During a 2016 news article, he had said, I am not going to hide. It was my job and whatever I did, I was not wrong. I am surprised and amazed at the hysteria surrounding my case. I did not act contrary to the laws of humanity at any stage. During an interview in 2009, when asked about the ethnic weapon that they were developing, the black bomb, he had said, that was great, yeah, that was the most fun I've ever had in my life. He is really not bothered by his past actions, and in his own words, that was a hell of a long time ago. Nobody remembers, and I'm not sure that anybody cares. During the testimony of one of Basson's former scientists, the man had said, I asked him why he was doing this. He told me, I have one daughter, and one day, as I have no doubt that black people will take over the country, but one day, when they do... And my daughter asks me, Daddy, what did you do to prevent this? My conscience will be clear. And I feel like that kind of sums up what drove a man like Basson. Keeping that statement that I just read in mind, he believed fully and still does that his actions were correct. He believed that he was doing his country and his people, his white people, a good service. And this has major roots in the era which he was born into. Much like Joseph Mengele, who existed during the eugenics movement in Europe, which basically believed in the notion of selective breeding to ensure superior bloodlines. Basson believed in the superior white race. In Basson's case, he was born into apartheid and existed in an era where people of color were seen as less than and unequal 
to the white population. Surrounded by that his entire life and then going to work in the army where death and killing were just part of the new normal it resulted in a potentially inflated idea of what was right and what was wrong. He was constantly driven by his goal to lower the black population to make the country a better place. Basson is unlike the majority of serial killers and monsters I speak about on my channel only for the fact that he is extremely well educated. He had so much of knowledge and skills to his name, but he chose to use his talent and his position of power for evil time and time again. And that kind of brings up the debate that is forever ongoing on whether evil is born or whether evil develops. Nature versus nurture. In Basson's case, I think he grew up in an era with a policeman father who most likely strongly believed in the segregation of races. Basson himself continued to be indoctrinated by those beliefs throughout his time in the army. None of that excuses or justifies his behavior or his actions though. Ultimately, he viewed the non-white population as objects to be conquered and eliminated. And through his actions, he violated the very rules that govern medical professionals. And honestly, this episode really just touched on the surface of all the information I came across. If you would like to read more about it, as well as the other key role plays in the sordid narrative, I will share some of the resources I have found helpful in the description, particularly the works of Chandre Hult, who was there throughout the three-year-long trial too. The real number of people who mysteriously died during the apartheid era due to Votabasson, his team and his creations might never really be known or be able to be proven. Doctors play an integral role in society. I mean, one of the main premises in the Hippocratic Oath, which all doctors take, is to abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm. Unfortunately, in Basson's case, the power and knowledge he acquired was used in dangerous, unethical and cruel ways. Desmond Tutu said in 2006, that Project Coast was a reflection of the inherent evil of apartheid, and that forgiveness depends on repentance, of which Basson has shown none. And the worst part though, although he was the focus of today's video, he is by far not the only one. And up until this point, no justice has been served, and these individuals continue to walk, live, and exist amongst us. And with that, I conclude today's episode. Until next time, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know you all are. Bye!